if you aren't willing to admit where your product falls short or your marketing, your business falls short, if you are not willing to be brutally honest with yourself, you're never going to be able to make the right deals. Welcome to the Fueling Deals Podcast, the podcast that teaches how to accelerate your business growth through all types of deals. It's time to fuel up, so buckle in with your host, Corey Kupfer. There are only two ways to grow your business, organically through sales and marketing and providing great products and services, and inorganically through deals. Too many companies focus only on the first way, organic growth. Welcome to the podcast, which will help accelerate your business growth inorganically. My guests are a huge variety of deal makers and experts on all types of deals who have personal experience that can help you grow, get clear, learn best practices, and avoid mistakes. We discuss everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My guest today is Niles Heron. Niles is the co-founder and chief strategy officer at PopDog, a technology and services company focused on fixing core problems in the esports and live streaming industry. He firmly believes that entrepreneurship is about building good systems, solving problems at scale. Niles left esports in late 2007 and worked for the better part of 10 years across corporate, creative, and entrepreneurial settings, helping design and implement systems to drive growth, productivity, and value. This work took him from Detroit to Los Angeles, San Francisco, back to Detroit with companies in biotech, automotive, aerospace, technology, and entertainment. He's been part of a number of startups, a few exits, a few exciting failures, and has invested heavily in trying to make paths like the one he took more accessible to underrepresented uh, spaces uh, from which he came. He's taught uh, and mentored at accelerators and incubators like Techstars, Generator, Detroit's Tech Town, spoken across the country at events about the value of entrepreneurship and startups to founders and communities they live in, and is a respected voice in the Detroit uh, startup ecosystem. He was honored by Crane's Detroit Business as a 20 in their 20s award winner in 2015. Niles, it's so great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, you know, it's been a long time since I've heard my, my bio actually read aloud, and it's one of the most uncomfortable things for me to write and work on, right? Because it feels like, mo I, I feel like many, many will understand uh, having something that someone else thinks of as being an accomplishment does not make that something that you feel like is an accomplishment. But you got to, you know, let people know where you've been. And that's kind of the game with the bio. Anyway, I now feel like the bio is very long. And, uh, <laughs> and like, I should clarify that I that I got the 20 in their 20s, like a bunch of my, my cohort colleagues um, were legitimately in their 20s. I think I had actually turned 30 by the time they gave me the award. So they really, you know, snuck me in under, under some technicalities there. It's all, uh, uh, all I love it. It's I love the value it. of it's one of the best deals you can ever make in life is hiring a good PR firm. So that's, uh... <laughs> well, I, well, I got, well, listen, the, the, despite the, uh, you know, the, the modesty and, and what sounds like uh, a feeling like this, you know, there's more you want to do, um, you know, be, be, being in your thirties and, and having, a, you know, done everything, you, you know, you've done is, is impressive. Uh, before we talk about that more, though, I actually want to take you back. I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up. And uh, what did you want to be when you were a little kid? Uh, because I, my guess is uh, that, you know, running an esports uh, and, and live streaming company uh, might not have been it. But who knows? Maybe it was. What, what were you thinking when you were young? Uh, I mean, I think that I wanted to be uh, an astronaut and a firefighter and an architect. 
<laughs> and uh, all at the same time, of course, uh, it was it was like a it's like three part time jobs that I wanted in each of those fields at a master level, of course. Um, Love it. What what actually happened though is my uh, my father was my, both of my parents are journalists by by trade, though neither are still in journalism. Um, and I wanted to own. Uh, I wanted to own the newspaper. My father was on strike for four or five years during, during from probably from the time I was seven until I was 11. And um, maybe, maybe a little bit younger to a little bit younger, right? But in that range. And uh, there was a point in which I was, uh, I was sitting at home and I, I talk about this a lot when people ask kind of how I, I grew into the career path that I've taken. And I was sitting there on my, uh, on like the piano bench in the house that I was growing up in and I was crying and my mom was like, what's wrong? And I, and I just said, you know, I'm never going to let this happen to my kids. We were, we were talking about the strike and, mm. and what was going on. And she was like, what do you mean? You're not going to be a journalist. And I said, no, I'm going to own the paper. Huh. Um, I think that at a really young age, I, I got a uh, firsthand or second painful secondhand experience of what it's like to have somebody else control your destiny. I hear that. Um, you know, like one of the things about my failures that I always tell people is that at least they were mine. You know, yeah. Yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't that somebody else made a bad business decision and the company went under. It was that I did something right or wrong. And maybe worldly forces, you know, are more to blame than I always am on some of those things. Cause that's how it works sometimes. But, uh, unequivocally, uh, I want the maximum amount of control over my own destiny. Me and God, those are the people that I want involved. Yeah, I got that. And that that's the classic, uh, I mean, entrepreneurial spirit. I mean, I, I understand that because, you know, I wear, uh, I wear a, uh, a thing on my wrist um, from myintent.org that has a word on it and it's called freedom. And it's my highest value. It's why I'm an entrepreneur. I don't want anybody else telling me what I want to do. And I, it also means, you know, for me, it also means freedom for all people from, you know, oppression, discrimination, and the broader thing. But for, in my life, you know, I want me and, and everybody that uh, that I have any influence on, or and people I don't have to be free. And I think, um, you know, that that's part of that entrepreneurial spirit. No, I mean, I think I think without question, and I think that it's uh, it's worth note that while it sounds simplistic, the only way to be free, and I mean free now, of uh, oppressive systems and structures and discrimination and all of that. The only way we find balance amongst people is, uh, is freedom. And I mean, freedom now, economically, entrepreneurially, the point, I mean, you know, one of the things we see very clearly is that, uh, most of my friends with not most, many of my friends with, uh, advanced degrees who have built themselves into careers based on the value of those careers, uh, absolutely more than anything else, understand what a golden shackle is. Yeah. Um, and listen, I, I have I have no desire to be shackled, golden, bronze, or copper. Right. <laughs> um, I'd rather I'd rather be free and poor uh, than rich and tethered. I got that. Fortunately, so, if you do it right, you know you can you can right. <laughs> like you don't have to right, be right. right. <laughs> you, uh, you can be you can be wealthy and untethered. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. And, and that's what we're and that's what we're up for. So along those lines, in that entrepreneurial spirit, what uh, what was your first real business? However, you define that. Um, 
the first real business that I decided I wanted to start was I, I started trying to build people computers in my uh, kind of my neighborhood and in school network when I was probably 11. Um, I didn't ever actually sell a computer. So, <laughs> you know, I don't know that I got much farther than the name. <laughs> the first real business that I uh, worked in and ran was I, I co-founded an internet radio station, early 2000s, 2001, 2002, I guess 2002, I would have, we would have started the station. And, um, and that uh, I continued on that for two and a half years and then folded that activity into uh, a job that I ended up taking when I was 17. Wow. And that, that was that was very early in terms of the Internet radio. Uh, oh, yeah. No, days, no, no. Right? I mean, I, I down, it was a program called Winamp um, and there was a plug in called Shoutcast and uh, you could get a server. You could either host your own server or get server space dedicated we're running this program and then people could click a link if you sent it to them and they could listen in through their winamp client it would it, it was not it was a high friction uh it was it was a high friction <laughs> service yeah a little a little different than having a podcast on uh, on itunes that anybody yeah, on yeah every phone they have right exactly <laughs> A little bit, uh, a little bit harder. Discovery was a big problem. <laughs> I love it. So, tell us a little bit more about what you know, what you're doing now, what you're up to, and then I want to uh, start swinging into, you know, the way that you've used deals to grow your business. But just tell us a little bit more about uh, about your businesses, what you're up to, and you know, what you got going on. Sure, sure. So, uh, Popdog is, as you mentioned, a tech and services company. Um, we are fundamentally focused on content creation and content consumption, especially in the world of live streaming. Um, there's always some uh, crossover, like no line is perfect. And so we also look at some video on demand, things you would normally think as YouTube videos, uh, people who create content for YouTube. YouTube. We, uh, I think, often unnecessarily call them influencers. I'm trying to get away from, from that phrase just because I, I don't think that that does justice to what is actually happening. Social media influencers, specifically those that uh, work in and around uh, the gaming video content market, my company is building technology and also is uh, providing services to a number of the top content creators in, in the industry that we're building analytics tools to better measure and present their value to brands, which is one of the big problems that we have in our industry. Mm -hmm. Brands don't understand live streaming let alone gaming. And so then you're saying, hey, I have a gaming live streamer. Let me sell you a sponsorship. And they're like, uh, can I just buy an ad? And it doesn't work that way, you know? So, and then you have to explain to them why this is in fact a better model or, or where they should, you know, sort of like stake in the ground and measure against their normal media spends and things like that. So uh, we're building technology to make that process easier at a very you know, high level uh, description. And then we run a management firm that manages 40 or so of the top gaming creators in the U.S. right now. Great. So, so throughout, you know, let, let's, I don't know where you want to stop, but maybe we, you know, we started some of the prior companies and then what you do now. I mean, you know, you've been involved in a number of different startups. I know, you know, startups generally are raising capital. Startups are sometimes acquired. Uh, certainly with, with brands, we're talking about, you know, there are all kinds of deals that you do with, with brands or, you know, with, that quote unquote influencers, I know you're not liking that word can do. Um, 
you know, so talk to me about some of the deals that you've done and how, uh, you know, those have helped to grow your business. Trying to think of where where the cleanest starting place is. What I would say is, uh, as a as a bit of background, prior to Pop Dog, I ran a growth consulting firm for uh, two, uh, three years or so in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, and that through through that work is where I kind of did a lot of the education and worked really closely with a lot of the accelerators. I kind of had enough flexibility of time and frankly, from a selfish place, wanted early access to great companies and entrepreneurs, right? Sure. You know, I mean, like that's, that's why I, I'd like to teach and work in accelerator programs is both because it certainly is valuable and, and feels that way in the moment to give back. But then you look up in three years and, and you've been nurturing the next crop of entrepreneurs who are building really exciting things, right? And now you know them and have a personal relationship with them. So, um, Michigan Funders was the the company that we started when I moved, or I started when I moved back to Michigan with a few of my a few of my colleagues. The purpose of that company was explicitly to um, help small businesses find capital. Right, we thought that there were some interesting laws we were able to leverage in Michigan. Uh, they were less uh, easy to leverage than we thought. But that notwithstanding, the whole goal here was saying, look, we think Michigan is a hotbed of innovation, not a, not a desert as it is, or at that point was often portrayed. And we want to be a part of helping this space find economic stability in terms of the entrepreneurial and small business ecosystem. Um, so we were going out and finding sort of macro syndications of many small investors, all of whom wanted equity. We thought that we think and still think I still believe in that model uh, a lot if you structure it appropriately. Um, I think that one of the things I found out really quickly in doing that though, was that um, a lot of businesses raise money to solve problems, not because the, uh, not because the problems actually require money to solve, but because the people capable of solving the problem without you learning how to do it costs money. Right. Right. So like you hear a lot of people saying, um, and, and, and I will get to why this is problematic in a moment and why that caused me to shift into a consulting position. But, uh, you hear people saying, you know, I, I have this great product and it's, it's just the best product. And if people knew, and I just need, you know, I got to get my marketing together so that people know about this great product. And the truth of it is maybe you don't have a great product. If we want to be very brutally honest, like maybe your product is in fact where maybe it is not the AB testing you need to do on your marketing strategy, but actually you just need to do another iterative cycle on your product. Right. Right. And you haven't actually found uh, you know, product market fit. Right. So in just in case there are people not uh, totally ingrained in small business and startup lingo product market fit is the point at which you find a sizable enough demographic that you can scale into uh, where you find that group of people that want your product enough to pay for it. Right. That is like, I have built a product. It fits a market. You can't have a business, a startup or otherwise that does not have a market. (laughs) You got to have a customer to be in business. Right. And you got to have enough customers that seasonality doesn't put you out of business that, uh, once they have the solution, it solves it forever. So they're not actually your customer anymore. Like that's a genuine problem. If you solve a problem too well, 
you need to be able to sell that solution to everyone in order to be in business because it means that you know it's why it's why drug companies don't make uh pills that cure things they make pills that manage things because there's no money in cures that's right. That's right. right. And they say they, they say tire companies could make tires that never wore out, but they yeah. But then that. they but then they'd be out of business. Right. If I only needed to buy one pair of Goodyear tires, I would literally take that pair of tires and put it on every new car um, that I ever bought because I don't need tires anymore. Right. right. But tires need to wear out in order for tire companies to be in business. It's a very good example. Um, and so all of that being the case, uh, we we find ourselves in a world where. Uh, we are often entrepreneurs are raising money to solve the wrong problem because they, because they, it is easier to blame the unknown unknown or the known unknown than the known known. Right. right. If it's easier for me to say the marketing is the problem, the organization is the problem, the capital is the problem. I don't have, I need a salesperson, whatever, than to say my product isn't good enough. What I found is that that's usually not because the product isn't actually good enough, but the product just hasn't been right-sized and tailored. The most amazing suit in the world, a Tom Ford suit, is going to look like it came off the rack if you don't have a tailor measure it for you. Right. Right? It has zero to do with product quality, with integrity, with any of that. It has everything to do with your ability to tailor it to your customer and make it actually work for them. So... In, in helping companies raise money over the course of a year and a half, I realized that what I was actually good at and interested in, often you will find in life that they are the same, um, is helping people make their product actually work. Mm. That was always much more interesting to me than raising money. And frankly, raising money is kind of a, it's kind of a con job, right? It's kind of like, uh, so when you raise money from anyone, mm -hmm. someone who wants to give you money, someone who doesn't want to give you money, uh, you are fundamentally convincing them that whatever their concerns are, are not as concerning as they think. Mm -hmm. Right. And you can do that by being totally honest all the time and you should, but you're probably not going to tell them about how, about the near, the near miss incidents that you've had in the course of running your business. Right. You're not going to say this one time I almost put myself out of business because I didn't understand that a factory in China is not that not all factories in China are made equal. Some have pre-existing certifications that allow them to pass uh, without extra testing, six month delay import testing uh, the products and I could put them directly into retail. Hmm. Right. Usually what you do the first time you've ever sent something to China to get manufactured is you say, I need 5,000 pieces. I found a company in China that can make it. They sent me back a sample. It was good. You think you're doing all the right things. What you didn't know is that Walmart will never take that product. Right. Because it doesn't have the certification that tells me it's not, it's flame retardant. It is not built with, you know, hexane. It is not, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so like we spend all this time going through the wrong motions to try to make something happen that just doesn't really work anymore. I would much rather be on the side of things that says you don't need money to, to get the Chinese factory. Like you, you need, you need money to bring the right people in or more specifically, if all you need is money, you can go get it. That's so that was a very long winded and circuitous path. So sorry about that. But like, the truth of it is that if you, if all you need is money, you will have no problem getting money. And this is the interesting, uh, Niles. I really want you to, like, 
I love that you made that point because people who don't know, who haven't been through it, who are thinking about maybe starting business or running business that have never raised capital, you hear so often that the issue is access to capital. We don't have capital. We can't get money, et cetera. And, and listen, let's face it. I mean, I, I just actually recorded a podcast today, uh, you know, with another uh, person who um, works with women. And, you know, she gave me all the stats on how you know, women, uh, you know, raise a lot, a lot less money and, and women, of color, yeah. women of color, especially only, you know, about 1% of them. Um, and uh, so, that, you know, there's a truth in that. Right. So I don't want to step over that. But also at the same time, I think too many people say the problem is uh, that I can't get money. And this is not this is entrepreneurs of all backgrounds. You know, they think money is the solution. They think money is the only problem. And neither of those are true. Well, so here's here's the here's the double edged sword. And what I was saying uh, about VCs and getting in you know, the sales job of raising money is like all it is, is you trying to convince someone that their fears are irrational. Right. right? Um, and, and granted, if I walk in as a six foot one, uh, more pounds than I want to say out loud, black man, right. And walk in, um, uh, I am going to have a harder time raising money from a, a timid non-black man often than yeah. someone who looks like them, right. Yeah. The amount of comfort you instill in someone is of is of meaning and the um, and and to to ignore the disconnect in comfort and trust that is built or or that is not built right um or not solved for when you don't look like the person you're raising money from is is disrespectful to all the people who have tried and failed that being said if all you need is money you will get money what is often the case though and that every investor knows this it's never just money the money is going to go toward, it's not just you need somebody, if all you need is money, you can go to the bank, right? What you need, but, but if, if what you still need is proof that your business works and you're the only one who believes your business works and you have no way to validate that, you're going to have a hard time getting money because that's not, because money is not all you need. That's right. Right. And so it's just about being very brutally honest with ourselves about what it is we actually need. I found that I was very able and frankly, much more interested in helping people raise and grow their businesses, sometimes via capital, uh, from a position of let's figure out what you really need. And then let's put a plan together to go get that than to say, let's just get money. And that kind of is, it backs into the, the question that we're here to talk about, which is like, you know, what, what are deals that are not just customer driven revenue? Yeah. Yeah. And, right? and, and, and what are deals that are not just VC money, right? Because there's oh, yeah, so many- exactly. So many types of, you know, joint ventures and strategic alliances and, you know, I I mean, you name it, uh, licensing deals that and I think they're so overlooked. So, yeah, let's talk about some of those. And and also when, you know, uh, I'd love to hear some examples, but also why do you think, first of all, let me ask if you agree with my premise. You know, one of the premises of this entire podcast is that everybody obviously focuses on organic growth, which they should. I mean, you got you got to focus on sales and marketing and providing great products and services. But. Uh, so many fewer companies focus on any kind of organic growth. And there's a lot of myths out there about, you know, uh, that deals are only for big companies or, you know, they're only M&A and, and, uh, and, and raising capital. Uh, if, do you agree with that? Or, uh, and and if, if you do, uh, why do you think some people figure out the way to do other kinds of deals and some people don't? Um, okay, so first off, I absolutely agree that there are many types of deals out there. Um, 
and all of them have their place. Organic growth has to be the foundation. Sure. You cannot start with inorganic growth. If you, if it's like, uh, like no, honestly, how about this? No metaphor is needed. It's just, it is just, it is just a truth. You have to start with a sale. There needs to be an actual customer for an actual product. However, once you have found the actual customers for your actual product, whatever that product is, now you can start augmenting. And now you can start saying, how do I amplify this message? Because so often what it actually comes down to is uh, you can force growth in kind of uh, any number of directions. But if you think about it as a point in, in space and time, like literally a dot on a plane, you can go in any direction. But if you go in all directions, you grow much, uh, much slower in yeah. a lot of ways, right? Because you have so much more ground to cover. Which means that in order to be successful, often scale is about picking one direction and leaning into it. And sometimes, often I would even argue, that is where investment really does matter. That's where a partnership, a JV really does matter. Who else is going in that, in that direction? If I'm bringing, let's say I have 10,000 customers and I'm going to head uh, on this metaphor of a, of a, a dot in space. I'm going to head you know, north by northeast. Those 10,000 customers, unless I am the only thing they will ever need in their life, will also need food. They will need water as we head north by northeast. They will need uh, cars. They will need service stations. They will need all types of things, amenities, on their journey with me as my customers north by northeast, which means that I am also explicitly bringing 10,000 customers towards other businesses that will get value from them. Yes. Who are those businesses? Where are their synergies? How do we amplify each other's message? Because some of that other business, which is a business, is in business, which means they also have a customer base. Like it is literally two businesses dragging their customer bases towards each other and saying, how do we combine these to get maximum value for both of us? If I cross over to 20% of your people and you cross over to 20% of my people, then we literally each can gain, you know, independent of each other, potentially, right? Uh, You know, significant customer bases and insignificant exposures, where, where does it make sense for us to work together, especially when you're talking about completely non-carnivorous uh, businesses, right? Not like I'm a smoothie shop and you're a juicery. Those might be competitive businesses. I might not want, I might just want to like, you know, figure out who you're partnered with and then go find their competitors and partner with them. Yeah. Right. But so there are always different, different levers, but it's about finding the synergies and recognizing that like no one is, uh, no one is everything to anyone. And, and why do you think some, so some businesses go and do that. And I find at least that some businesses are just, I mean, again, I'm a hundred percent. I agree with you. You need, you need organic growth. That's the base of your business, right? You, you're not going to, you know, I mean, I mean, I guess there are companies out there that just solely are roll up companies or whatever, but you know, absent that, you know, 90, whatever, 8% of your business, real businesses, are gonna, you know, need need customers, need products, need services, et cetera. But yeah. then, but then um, there are some of those businesses that goes out, go out and find those strategic alliances and those joint ventures and those, you know, joint marketing opportunities and those affiliate uh, opportunities or whatever they are. And a lot of them don't. And a lot of them, I see, they're banging their heads against the wall trying to find more customers organically, and they're stalled, and they, and you know, they don't do it. What do you think there is about maybe the mindset or the mentality or the resources or whatever it is? No, it's 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 a hundred percent a mentality thing. 
in in what world like there there and this is where i was saying this is the reason you need uh an organic customer base before you decide to do any deals or try to raise money or anything right um unless you are talking about very high-tech moonshot growth uh in, which is, you know, the idea that someone is going to invest billions of dollars into your business and you don't have a revenue strategy, right? Like, but you're just building something so cool that you'll figure it out. That happens. Right. It happens a lot in Silicon Valley. I'm not saying that's not viable. Frankly, like I just raised money on not that, but kind of that. So like, I'm not looking down at that, at that model. But the reason you need a customer is that you need to understand why you don't have two customers. Right. If you don't understand why you don't have two customers, you might as well have zero. Because the whole point of this partnership is to go from one customer to two customers, from two to four, from four to eight, et cetera, et cetera. Right? And the, every deal you make, it's got to be that. Otherwise, what are you even doing? Like, what what is the business that you're in if you're not in the business of growing your customer base, either by deepening your relationship with existing customers or by getting new customers? Either is fine. I care about money in the door. And I care about the limit on the on the demand, right? I care about demand side limit. I care about, uh, you know, number of sort of mouths that need to be fed by your solution. But if you don't understand why you don't have more customers, if you can't pinpoint very, very specifically, right? I don't have more customers because the cost of a conversion um, is is $5. And in order to make my product work at scale, I need to be able to make 15,000 units, which means that I need to be able to spend 15,000 units times $5 per customer required. I don't have that money, right? Perfect. Show me your math. That's easy money to get. Right. If you can show me that you actually acquire a customer for five dollars and that you can give me some confidence that there is reasonable scale on that number, that once you spend five dollars, once it doesn't become five dollars and 20 cents the next time. Right. Right. As long as you can show me some stability in that sort of arbitrage, I can we like that's an easy financing decision. You can go find like lots of people's rich uncles will give you money for that. You don't even have to know them that well. Right. So like, I'm less worried about that, but like, if you don't have, so to, to answer the question, why don't people go seek deals? Because that would require them to admit to themselves. And I say this as a very kind, loving, warm kick in the ass to my entrepreneurial friends. Um, if you aren't willing to, ex to admit where your product falls short or your marketing, your business falls short. If you are not willing to be brutally honest with yourself, you're never going to be able to make the right deals. Mm. Know thyself. You have to be in a position where you can say, look, the reason I need this deal is that it gives me access to the 5,000 customers of which I think I'm going to convert 3% because 3% is actually an amazing conversion rate in a lot of spaces, uh, especially applied to blanket audience. And 5,000 at 3% ends up being, you know, insert number here, right? Yeah, you know, like what, uh, 300 some, some? I, I can't, I can't do yeah. math at this, dude, at this dude, point dude. in the day. <laughs> right. I, but I, like, no, you but know, I mean, like, but, yeah. but that, but that number of customers against 5,000, it might only be a, you know, 500, 450, something like that customers. It's fine. But like, you know, that 450 customers changes the course of your business. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, it, anyway, like you can't do deals if you're not willing to be uh, in incredibly self-critical. Love it. 
or or you're or or if you uh, are not an amazing salesperson but truthfully if you're an amazing salesperson you don't need to do you don't need to do deals because you uh you're doing organic growth right 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 and, and and that doesn't mean there's still not an opportunity to do deals but but you you know you may be so busy you just get more customers that you know you know you don't Listen, need to do it you should always just be getting customers if there is no if there is no natural limitation right to your customer set right if you can literally say i am selling water i am in the desert i will not run out of water i will not run out of desert right then why why ever do you don't you don't ever need to do any m a anything you need to just just go sell water like shut up hire somebody else <laughs> to go farther to the desert and sell water do not worry about anything i am talking about that's right that's right but that's not how most business works. That's right. That's most right. Most businesses not water in the desert. Most businesses water in the water factory. And you got to explain why your water is the best water. That's right. And there's a lot of other water around. And yeah. Like, exactly. Why should I, why do I, Essentia or Fiji? All sales. It's all sales tactic, right? Um, so let me take us in a different direction for a second. This came from a listener that reached out to me. And I don't know if you can answer this, Niles, but. Let's see, because you're closer in age than I am. Um, I, I, I had a listener in one of my earlier uh, podcasts to reach out and, you know, love the podcast. And he said to me, hey, I'm a millennial. I'm early in my career. I'm fascinated by deals. Uh, but, you know, like, I don't know how to, uh, like, ha- how, do I, how do I get into it as a millennial? And I don't know if there's a distinction between as a millennial and anybody else. But listen, as a 58-year-old guy who's not a millennial in, and, and not that age in this market, right? I was that age in a very different market. Uh, I'm wondering if you have any particular advice uh, for millennials who are looking to, uh, you know, to, to learn how to do deals. Um, yeah. So I, until this podcast had never thought of myself as someone who did deals. Mm -hmm. I have always thought of myself as someone who sought above all else to add value. Love it. To every room in all moments at all times, as often as possible. I look to add value. Um, sometimes that means helping somebody find more organic growth. Sometimes that means figuring out how to partner with, with someone who can help that, right? Whether yeah. that's M&A, whether that's JV, whether that's a large purchase order, a, 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 an, agree, an agreement to purchase, right? I don't, like it, it can look any number of ways. So my advice to anybody who wants to do deals is stop talking about uh, deals unless you're Corey on a podcast and start talking about um the value you are adding to, to that company and, and what that forces, what that will unequivocally force in my opinion is actually for you to uh, really invest time getting to know the, the DNA and the fabric of the company mm-hmm. that you're looking at the business that you're starting, the business that you're working for, any of it, right? What matters, what makes that business's soul matter? right? Why is this business important? Asking those sorts of questions often, in my opinion, can, um, can lead to the right kind of, uh, of deal, of, of deal sourcing, because it, it's not about, again, it's, it's not like, you know, I, I love M&A. And so 
I'm going to go like knock doors and find companies that want to get, that want to merge and acquire, right? Like that's not how that works. (laughs) How it works until you're an M&A lawyer Mm -hmm. and you've now done so many deals. Like the first deals are never because you said, I really want to do deals. The first deals are because you wanted to accomplish a thing and your deal is how you did it. That's a great distinction. And I love that. Like somebody who's early in the career, listen, first of all, I'm a big believer in generally in that concept of just bringing value, like, you know, being of service and figuring out how you bring value. And that's, and not uh, worrying about, especially when you're early in your career, about even, you know, I listen, we all want to uh, at some point get fairly compensated. We don't want to be taken advantage of. But, you know, I, I think the opportunity to just provide value early, be a sponge and learn, and then also just figure out where you can help people, it's always going to end up coming back to you. And you're right. Sometimes that's going to turn into a deal. Sometimes it's going to turn into a, a job opportunity. Sometimes it's going to turn into an investment opportunity. Sometimes it's going to turn into a failure. That's a great learning experience. But I really believe in that mentality that you, that, that you raised. It's, it's, it's got, it's got to be, it's got to be the point, right? You got to do things you love doing because those are the things that you will stay up at night because you didn't do them well enough. It's like this. If you really love your partner, you know, when you weren't good to them today, mm-hmm. you know, even if, it, or, or maybe, you know, listen, hindsight is always twenty twenty at the point that you open your eyes. So I'm not suggesting that on every day you will notice that, but at some point it will be very clear that you that they deserved more from you that you should have been that you should have been home more for dinner that you should have been able to be more present for them or that you should have you know treated them better whatever right whatever the thing is whatever the shortfall is but like if you don't care about that person none of that stuff i just said matters at all right, right? and so figuring out how to like partner with a company and help them partner with another company and you don't love them if you don't love what you're trying to accomplish, how are you ever, I don't need advice from someone who doesn't love me on how I should act. Mm. Right. I don't need support from someone who doesn't love me in that regard. That's just not what I need. Nor do most businesses need that. Most businesses need people who love the mission, who believe in it. Right. And because they believe in it, they can then see, you know, the the value position that they need to create in these in these quote unquote deals. I love that. I love that. Uh, one other area I want to go. You know, in your bio, you you, you talked about the commitment to underrepresented areas. Uh, you know, uh, you I know you know you're based in, uh, in in Detroit. People have different perceptions of Detroit. May not know what has been going on there in the entrepreneurial world and in terms of business opportunities. So, would you let the audience know? Um, you know, what's going on in Detroit and also, you know, what the opportunities are and the kind of work you do in terms of underrepresented communities? Uh, yeah. So Detroit is point one, just an awesome, an awesome place. But uh, my bias notwithstanding, Detroit is a city that is you know more historically segregated than almost anywhere else in, in the nation. Um like when I was growing up, I was able to go to the wall that quote unquote used to separate black and white neighborhoods. Used right? to. Okay. Uh, and, and it's so funny because uh, that, that wall no longer means anything. Black people live on both sides of the wall. And now there is a police fence 
a mile north of it. Mm. Right. No physical wall, but you know where you are and are not welcome based on how cops treat you. Like that was the world. That was the space that I grew up in. Right. Mm. And it's, you know, listen, times changed. Uh, word to Bob Dylan. And, you know, like we're we're getting better at a lot of this, but we still got a long ways to go. And Detroit is still an 85% black city. Um, so when you look at what happens in 85% black cities, you see a lot of concentrated poverty. You see a lot of systemic racism, which I'm much more concerned about, frankly, than overt. Yep. Like somebody who wants to walk up and call me any name in the book, either you can fight or you got lucky that day. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, like, cause I, cause like either I'm in the mood to fight over this or I'm not. And either you can fight and you can win and I'll have to just like get called the N word today or not. Right. Like that's a very simple, that's a very simple piece of math for me. It's the systems of control that are subversive that you, that you don't see, right. That you just have to feel. Those are the ones that, that we need to work to amend them. And, and the only way to do that, in my opinion, is to increase the amount of ownership that is, is that, that is held by, um, by the people that are adversely affected by the system, right? Yeah. So when I look at cities like Detroit, when I look at places like this, why does this space matter to me? It matters to me because I feel like I can make a substantive impact. I feel like I can add value, right? By coming here, owning my lot, owning my work, and being able to, in, in owning those things, continue to inspire people to uh, feel like they too can own those things. I fundamentally feel like if you had business owners on, um, on every block in uh, disenfranchised communities, you would fix generational wealth gaps inside of two cycles. Mm. If your granddad owned a business, the likelihood that you will be both capable of owning a business, but more importantly in this moment, um, able to not fall into the, the concentrated poverty traps that we know exist, uh, it's got to be, got to be tenfold. Like if you told me it was less than tenfold, I would be baffled. So like my goal is how do I get, how do I help more entrepreneurs exist on every neighborhood uh, so that we don't have a world where people don't know that you can, you know, they think the only options are the ones that are prescribed and handed to them as opposed to saying, oh, I can just, you know, like if school isn't for me, if working for a company isn't for me, you know, I can, I can own a gas station. I can own a coffee shop. Right. And that's an, and that's an okay life. That's an okay position. Yeah. Like those are the things that really matter to me. And I think that that's the, if, you know, if if we look back on the people that I have uh, respected most in my, in my life, they have been people who, who showed uh, not told, right. Like actions over words all day. Yep. And in a world where uh, actions are going to speak louder and be more impactful than words. You got to show people what it looks like to run that business. You got to show people what it looks like to live that as, you know, listen, uh, not to make this any sort of diatribe or, uh, or sermon, you know, we, we lost, we lost a great man as a culture, Nipsey Hussle. Oh yes. And one of the, and you know, when we look at why, when we look at why he mattered so much, it was because the the distance from his actions to his words was uh was almost non-existent yeah 
right? If he said, if he said it, he was doing it. If he said, own, own your rights, he owned his rights. If he said, buy the block, he bought that block. And he always did that in a way that opened the door wider for people to walk in behind him. That is like fundamentally, you know, so it's why that law, that type of a law shakes the culture so much, right? Because we want more people to show that path, right? And not just rap about their jewelry. And Nipsey also rapped about his jewelry, but he told, but he told us that he didn't go into debt to buy it. Right. Right. You know, and like all of that, especially in spaces like Detroit, especially in spaces that are black, that are majority minority, like you need people like that. Someone's got to stay. You can't all leave. Or if you do, and listen, I left, so I'm not talking shit, but like, if you leave, come back. Right. Which you did. Yeah. And that's why, that's why I did because I wanted, because I wanted to be able to be involved in, I wanted to plant in soil that mattered. Mm-hmm. Not just, not just the most fertile soil that you can, you know, f- travel the world to find. Like I want, I want my rocky soil back here. And and now, so in 2019 compared to let's say 2009, right? Great recession, et cetera. You know, uh, what have you, wh- where's Detroit now compared to, you know, at its worst times, uh, you know, over the last decade? Um, we've had a lot of very wealthy people um, decide that our space was worth uh, investing in. So gentlemen like Dan Gilbert, uh, I wish that I could say with faith or confidence that they weren't all men, but mm-hmm. uh, I think they have been. So, you know, insert uh, gender, wage and wealth gaps here. But um, honestly, the thing that happened most is that somebody who believed enough to put their money up came and put their money up. Yeah. And like, listen, I, we can say uh, there, I have a lot of, I have a lot of things that I can say about Dan Gilbert. Um, I think that, you know, representation of the people in the city that he bought, the people that lived in that city uh, has been less than desirable in some ways, uh, in many ways. But he also like fundamentally walked into a ghost town, bought all of it, and then put all of his businesses inside of it. Yeah. Right. But it's, it's kind of like, you know, when someone buys the fi- like the super fixer upper on the block, that's like bigger than every other house, but totally dilapidated. Um, everybody else kind of like, you know, they'll come in, they'll buy, you know, like it's a nice house. It doesn't need that much work. And then there's that one house. It's just, you know, it's going to be a beast. Like you're going to have to put all, you're going to put millions of dollars into fixing it up. Right. Uh, but if you have that money, if you can do it, it's the most valuable house on the block, on the block. Like that is right. like kind of fundamentally the Dan Gilbert model, except he bought the entire block uh, starting with all of the cheapest properties. Right. So imagine if all of those properties that I just mentioned were owned by people. Right. And he said, you know, talk about deals. These are deals. Dan understood the mortgage market because he ran a mortgage company. So he understood how comps worked. So he looked at Detroit, downtown Detroit and said, all of these buildings are uh, underutilized, right? Their maximal value is not even close to what they are receiving today. Right. Then he bought all of the buildings he could buy for nothing. Now, building hadn't sold in downtown Detroit in 10 years. Right. So right? There, were no, there were no comps. Exactly. So he established the only comps were his comps. Right. Right. 
he said, the building next to you is worth a penny a foot. And I know it because I just paid it. Right. So how, so how are you going to sit here and tell me that you're worth $20 a foot? They couldn't. And the, and the market was crashing. And so he just bought all the buildings for nothing. <laughs> and then over time, once he owned a lot of the property, right, he put his businesses in those properties and then drove the value back up. Right. It's brilliant. Like I'm not, yeah. it's, it's brilliant. I wish he hired more black people, but like what he did is brilliant. And it's, and there's no argument that can be made to that, in my opinion. Um, but that, that activity, frankly, has done a lot for Detroit. Like uh, that activity is certainly why I was able to move back uh, and not struggle as much as I otherwise could have, you know? So like, I think that's what's changed in 10 years is frankly, uh, people, hmm. Well, it's comps, right? Because other people have invested in Detroit, we now have comps. Right. As a people, which is crazy that we needed that, to be very clear. Right. 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 I, it I, is I, nuts that right. we that we needed to get a comp. To get to for, get to get it validated by somebody who says yeah. it's worth it's worth something. So and, and now all of a sudden, yeah. you know, everyone Detroit's the coolest place in the world. Right. Because, you know, because some rich dude said, you know, I like because I like it. Right. And so like that, that's what we're looking at in Detroit right now. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Before I ask you my last question, um, where uh, where can people uh, find out more about what you do? What's the best place for them to get more information on you? Um, Popdog is popdog.com. Uh you can find me personally at, at just I'm Niles Heron on every social platform. So at Niles Heron on Instagram, on Twitter, um, I talk a lot. I apologize in advance. I don't really, but I feel like I need to say that. Um, I try not to be unreasonable, but, um, but I absolutely am outspoken. So be, you know, be forewarned, but um, yeah, I mean, so like, that that is that is the easiest place to find me. Uh, Popdog, the agency that we uh, that we own is called Loaded. Loaded is the foremost management agency for video game talent in the country right now. We're super proud and excited about that. We get to do a lot of the actual deals that I didn't talk about <laughs> here. Are, I do I do through Loaded because I do a lot of commercial negotiations for my clients, whether that's sponsorships or endorsements or JVs or uh, equity positions or or whatever. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's that's where I'm at. Great stuff, great stuff. So my last question, I always ask on the podcast, and I'm I'm really looking forward to your answer on this because of your perspective on things. Is you know, authenticity is one of my highest values. I talk about it all the time. There's a reason my book is called Authentic Negotiating, and for me, authenticity is not about external morals or anybody else's judgment, but it's about living a life and making your uh, life decisions and business decisions and deal decisions based upon what's authentic to you, what's true for you internally. Like there's an alignment there. Uh, you know, and I think it's somewhat related to what you talked about, about, you know, uh, providing value to other people in my mind. But I'd love your view on authenticity and how it impacts the way you live your life and the way you make your business decisions. Um, right. What I was going to ask is, is I want to make sure that the question is, how does uh, a pursuit of authenticity or my view of authenticity affect how I live my life as a business person? 
Yeah, your life and and how you run your, you know, all aspects of your life, including your business. Yeah. Um, I think that I think that the easiest way to answer that question, honestly, is to say that I, uh, a long time ago, now, a really short time ago, relative to like the world, but like a long time to me, realized that like I suck at being anybody other than me. Yeah. I'm, I'm really bad at it. And I tried for a long time. I, I tried for a really long time to be what other people wanted me to be uh, or what it felt like other people would like to, for, would like for me to be, you know? And I found that anytime I was forced back, anytime in my life that I've been forced back into a position where I was not a hundred percent who I am, or at least fully empowered to be who I am, which is, which is not necessarily the same as being a hundred percent who I am. Right. But like at any point I know I, I am not being limited by uh, my inability to farther for, to further act as if I were someone else. Yeah. Um, I think that what happened for me, was I was talking to somebody about this the other day. Uh, I don't wear suits. Uh, if if you're getting married and I love you, I'll wear a suit. But like other than that, I don't wear suits. Um, because it felt like every time I I was in a suit, um, I felt like I was a poor facsimile of somebody who should be wearing a suit. <laughs> you know, uh, and like the people in the meeting could see that too. And like by the end of the meeting, fine, right? It it worked out. We were okay. Um, but it took just as much work to convince them that it was either one okay that I was someone wearing a suit that didn't wear that like wasn't supposed to be wearing a suit, or two that I wasn't wearing a suit and that they should still believe in me, right? right? Like it took the exact same amount of time, no matter what the challenge was. At which point I was like, I might as well be comfortable. <laughs> right. Um, and not sacrifice, again, even those moments of like, this isn't me, you know, like, I don't want to be doing this, like all of that. Like, I just, I don't, I don't carry any of it because I'm bad at carrying it. But, you know, I'm not. Uh, and that's no shade to anybody. But like authenticity drives everything that I do. Um, I'm unapologetic about who I am. Uh, I feel like part of the the biggest trick that anyone has ever told black people, the biggest lie is like, if you act whiter, they won't see you as being so black. Mm. And then you spend your entire life trying to f conjugate your verbs perfectly and to, and to only dress wearing the queen's garments and the only speak using the king's english and all of a sudden you realize that all you have actually done is bowed before a throne mm. and i'm not interested like that's not authentic to me because i'm the kid who sat on the piano bench and said i'm not gonna it's not that i'm not gonna be a journalist i'm just gonna own the paper right like so authenticity is and maybe most importantly um authenticity for me has been explicitly attached to all of the moments in my life when I have felt the most powerful. Hmm. Right. Hear that. I, like when you said, are you walking in your purpose? 
and I've been able to say yes and not be lying about it. Because sometimes, you know, we fake that funk. Sometimes we say this is totally my purpose and we know damn well that's not our purpose. But like in those moments, every time I have been being 100% of the man that I that I hoped to be. Mm. Love hearing that. You know, and like that's and that's all that that's all that matters at the end of the day. Like, you know, I, I don't have kids. Uh, I hope to be a step ahead uh, at some point soon. But like what matters to me most is that any kids I do have or any people that look up to me, look at me and don't see a shell. They see the full person. Yeah. Like yeah. all these deals, all these deals, like. If I, if I got to like walk in the door at the end of a long day and take my mask off so that my kids know who they're looking at, like that's whack. Also, sometimes masks get stuck to your face. That's right. That's right. It's one of the things that I've always loved about, you know, I was from the day I met you and saw you on stage at my wife's event and, you know, you just, you who you are and you speak your mind and, and not in a way that's, you know, uh, you know, that's comes from any sort of like, uh, better than anybody or ego or whatever. It's just, it's just, you just, you just know who you are and, and that's what's out there. And that's, uh, so I'm, I'm thrilled to have had you on the show, man. Well, one, one thing I want to say about that um, is just that like, first off, thank you for having me on the show. It means a, a, a great deal to me, but more importantly, like I think it took me a long time to, to just be myself. Cause I felt like you, you know, you needed to know who you were in order to be yourself. Yeah. Um, that's only if you expect that you need to be better than anybody, right? You can stop pretending that you're somebody else right now. If you accept the fact that you might not be better than everybody, right? That, that whoever you are, you are, period. that whoever, that whoever you are, you are. And that what you need to do is be the best version of yourself, that that has to be the most important thing and the most important decision you're making every day. And so like, if you're anxious, if you're sad, if you're tired, all of that is fine. Like that can be who you are today. And you also don't need to know where you're going. Like, but like you got to remove the pretense and demand on yourself that you have it all figured out because that's, what's forcing you to act like somebody else right now. Yeah, man. I feel to act like a more complete person than you believe yourself to be. That's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, I, I feel like we can do an entire podcast on this topic, but uh, we. You know, next <laughs> but next time, a absolutely, exactly. So, listen again. Thank you so much for coming here. I, I just, I know you provided so much value for our listeners. I really appreciate having you on. Thank you, Corey. I appreciate it. And thank you, Fueling Deals listeners, for tuning in. Remember, there's only one difference between companies that grow inorganically and those that don't, and it's unrelated to size, amount of capital, or any other factor other than that the owners and executives of companies that do deals make a decision to do deals, and then they take action. It's time to refuel. So until next week, Corey Kupfer, signing out. Thank you again for tuning in. Be sure to leave Fueling Deals a rating and review on iTunes and Google. Check out all our episodes at fuelingdeals.com to find out more resources to accelerate your business growth.